Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. We have another uh, special edition, special guest. Actually, uh, I think it's your second time, right? Uh, being on the yes. podcast, Thomas. Yeah. We have a, a reoccurring special guest, a frequent flyer, hopefully, for uh, months and years to come. Thomas Accord. He's going to be talking about a book that he just helped um, compile. And it's called, I, I had it pulled up here. <laughs> See, this is professional uh, podcasting. Who, who is my neighbor is the name of the book. You can get it on Amazon. And, um, and I actually, I got it on Kindle, but I'm wishing that I got it on hard copy because I think, um, I, I think this is something that, I, I don't, it, it, hopefully it'll survive a purge, but it's something I want to be able to pass down because it, there's just so many good things that you compile here. Um, how big is it, by the way? It's a, it's a large Kindle book. Is it, do you have like yeah. a hard copy of it there that you can show us or? I don't have one with me right now, but it's as it's it's as big as a like a dictionary or something. I mean, it's a it's a big fat thing. Okay, yeah. and you didn't write most of that. You're the compiler. You you helped write the foreword then and some introductions and and so forth, right? That's right. It's it's an anthology. It's a reader, and so it's more of like a reference work. Um, and we did write little introductions for each section and the um, the intro and the afterward. Okay. Um, I, I was just actually trying to pull up where people can get it. Is it just Amazon or are there other places as well? It's at Amazon. It's also at Apple iBooks. And okay. I think that, um, I think the Nook store is going to carry it, but I, I don't even know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A- Amazon's the big place where people are getting it. Yeah. All right. I found it there. It's ba- paperback, 25 bucks, Kindle, 10 bucks, um, marked down from 25. So it, it's a reasonable price for all the information you're getting. And it's arranged by someone, uh, yourself and, uh, and Daryl Dow is the other That's person right. um, mm-hmm. who, who you guys know what you're talking about. And, and so I, I want to just first ask an open-ended, you know, why did you decide to put this together? What's the book about? So this came about the idea of it came about in 2015 when uh, all the sort of the national discussion in politics turned toward some of the themes in the book, which deal with, nationhood, borders, immigrants, and things like this. And we began to encounter a lot, of, uh, a lot of new literature, a lot of old literature that we had never read. And as we were reading this, we were finding a, um, a sort of contrary view to the prevailing narrative in America, and that many people had never accessed this. And we wanted to provide a way, uh, a sort of a record for ourselves of some salient you know, selections that were really um, impactful to our own thinking, but also to helpful for others. And the, the big idea for us sort of goes back to something C.S. Lewis did in his book, uh, The Abolition of Man. He argues that there's such a thing as the way, he calls it the, the Tao, the Tao. There's this way, this universal way that all humans have always seen the world, a set of values, like courage has always been favored, uh, honesty, truthfulness, and at the end of his book, in the appendix, he writes, he records some of these values. He actually goes in and talks about friendship and honesty and uh, loyalty from the Greeks and from Egyptian sources. And that's sort of what we did. We've taken just one theme, not many themes, and recorded as many sources as we could find over the, over the years into a compilation that we've, that we've made. All right. So the, the theme of the book then are these natural relationships, these social bonds, right? Right. Um, could you just expand on that a little bit? Because I think this is really important. And I think um, 
this is one of the things that is one of the reasons that I keep saying the issue is not critical race theory right now confronting Christianity or something. I mean, that, yes, that's important, but that it's not critical race. Theory. That's not the root. I think what you're talking about is more the root of what we're dealing with. So, so explain those concepts to us, if you would. So some of the concepts are things like, um, I would say a, a sense of a sense of one's being in the world uh, in relation to other people. <clears throat> this would be, it could be family. It could be place. It could be geography. It, it could be language, uh, religion, but there's a sense that, that emerges when, when you combine many of these uh, elements together that produces um, a, a place of one's own, a sense of one's own uh, <clears throat> belonging with other people. And throughout all literature, um, it could be poetry, it could be epic literature, fiction, history. People have, have spoken about that. And they've, it, they've, it's sort of like it comes out sometimes and people don't even know, know it. And so, for instance, one of the, the things we have here is a, a quote from Homer. And this is a beautiful story, by the way. This is the thing. We, we've left out so much in our book. Uh, there's so much more. The whole story of the Odyssey, for instance, is a man trying to get back home because he loves his wife. He loves his son. He loves the wheat fields around his house. He loves his island. He loves his dog. His dog is waiting for him when he gets back home. And, and he's, got, right. he's got this beautiful goddess who wants to stay, him to stay on this like paradise island uh, with her. And he's like, yes, I could stay here and have immortal love with you or whatever but I want to get back home to my wife because that's what's natural to man. And you have thousands of, of examples of this uh, going back through all civilization. It's not just, you know, Western uh, history or Western civilization. It's not just modern. It's, uh, it's ancient. It's, it's the East, it's the Middle East. It's, uh, you can find this in um, all cultures and all times. And so some of those themes, again, are just um, love of what's near. The, the enjoyment of what's familiar and a sense of peoplehood, sharing things together, whether it's suffering or joy, victory or symbols, songs, foods, even food. Uh, and so there's, there's this like a mountain of, of uh, writing and evidence for us in the historical record. And we've tried to compile as much of that as we can. And we really feel like We've only just scratched the surface, believe it or not. The book's like 600 pages, but we feel like there's so much more out there. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that you wrote it. Um, on a personal level, I think, I, I don't know how to phrase this. I, um, I, f I feel like I resonate with it. I, maybe most people would, you know, because everyone hopefully, you know, loves home. They love the things that are familiar to them, whether or not, um, whether or not they are, uh, you know, virtue signaling about abstract principles and, you know, sure. saying that they're in love with these grand things like equality um, and, 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 you know, revolutionary things. They, at the end of the day, I think most people do resonate with, yeah, but when I go home, when I go to the place that um, that's, that's, I'm familiar with, there are things there that, that I love. And those are the things that I take care of and that I try to steward well. And so, um, so, so I, I resonated with this personally, but I, I also um, feel as though that there's a dividing line uh, right now in, in our country, which is, I think you, you had hinted at, maybe that's why you wrote it, 
Um, are there just some people that kind of get this and some people that don't, or people that are, I should say, self-aware of the fact that uh, loving your neighbor, loving the things that are close to you, there's a greater responsibility there. There's more social bonds there. And then there's the people who just, they just don't see that. They live that way in part, but they think that they have to be in love with uh, or, or prioritize things that are not near in proximity to them. Do you see that? Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, we've said this before in different ways, but I think there's this ideology today that tries to undo the natural way of living in the world. Um, G.K. Chesterton wrote about this in his book, Heretics. And, uh, and many, I mean, it's so, it's so many it's, uh, places you can find people um, expounding upon this, but everything that was natural to human existence before maybe 150, 200 years ago, has people have tried to invert that. It could be gender roles, it could be social hierarchy, it could be, and some of this stuff might've been bad, you know, but whatever it was in the past, we have to undo that. And so even though people might feel these natural things, there's, there's also this ideology that tells them you have to value things in a certain way today. And for instance, you have to place, uh, one principle of Christianity is, you know, place others needs uh, ahead of you, you know, so treat others with deference and all this. But when it comes to politics, if you apply that politically, treat other countries' needs ahead of your own, that's not, that's not a good policy. And it's not one that actually finds any, any referent in history, Christian or otherwise. And so, yeah, there, you can find this uh, natural sentiment in people, but, um, and you can call the ide ideology whatever, whatever you want. You can call it liberalism or uh, critical race theories. I think those are just the critical race theory is just an iteration of right. this larger. It, it's not system. really that new. Right. That's right. Yeah. So, so, you know, I've noticed this even with people in my own generation, people I'm close in proximity to who um, let, let's take a crisis like uh, you know, the, the immigration crisis or something. And I think there's kind of an emotional hook, maybe through technology. Uh, we, we can see these images and, and, um, hear these narrations and and feel the melodrama and right and and, and there's a false sense of proximity in that you know you're, the, these aren't people they, they did um I, I don't know who it was but there was a, uh, a kind of a humorous um, bit that some comedians did in Canada where they had this tall Turkish man uh, walk around and they were asking people hey um, I think it was Toronto if I'm not mistaken we, you know what do you think about um, immigration specifically refugees and oh I'm, I'm all for refugees coming here and they say well great we have this person right here he needs a home tonight can <laughs> right. you come, come to your house right? right and of course every single person who was for in principle refugees coming to their country would not allow someone to come into their home and so right. so I've wondered whether or not there's kind of like technology has tricked people sort of into this, this proxy thinking that they're proximate to something thinking that they have a responsibility to something when um, maybe that responsibility isn't as great as as perhaps whoever's behind that agenda you know is trying to promote it to be um, do you see that you know kind of working its way into our culture yes I, one of the studies so if you get into um, the scholarship on nationalism there's actually a lot of scholarship on this from like the 1940s until today, um, there's a debate on how nationalism came about. And one of the theories is that with modern technology, um, the industrial revolution, the means to communicate 
transportation, uh, the fact that we ship goods all over the world makes you conscious, conscious of people all over the world. And so the theory, one of the theories is that nationalism came about if, at first because we could travel uh, across the nation, like the radio um, brought, drew Americans all together. You know, we could have this sort of national discussion all at the same time, and that inc increased nationalism. Well, how did globalism or cosmopolitanism come about? Well, the same thing, just all over the globe. Transatlantic cables, shipping, um, and now the internet makes you con conscious of people everywhere. But at the same time, that there's something called a, a human scale to politics. And Aristotle talked about this. And I know Aristotle was thousands of years ago. Who cares about this guy? Well, he had something true to say. You don't, you know, when you build a house, you don't build a house that has a door that's 40 feet tall. Okay, you build one with a door that's seven or eight feet tall because that's a human scale. When you build cities, you build cities that are a human scale, large enough for us to all kind of know each other. And if, even if you don't know the person, you know how they think. Like where I live, it's Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I don't know everyone in Baton Rouge, but it's big enough, but small enough to be a human scale where we all, we eat the same foods, we celebrate the same holidays, we watch the same football team. We're a city. Um, if you go too big though, if things get too big, the city, the nation, a house, it starts to feel unhuman. Uh, and you can have some sentiments and say, oh yeah, I love these people far away but you don't ever see them right. and you don't listen to their music and you don't eat their food and you don't dress like them or talk like them. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it's too far away. And you can find politicians talking about this too. Like um, I mentioned, I think last time I was on, I mentioned John C. Calhoun, but he, he talked about this. Uh, people's loyalties are strong in relation to their distance. And uh, he wasn't just Calhoun, you know, maybe he, he was a Southerner. You can critique him. Augustine said this too. Aquinas said the same thing. Um, depending on how far away you are from people is how weak or strong your actual social ties are going to be. And so while you can say you love people far away, your love for them when it comes to actually sacrificing for them is going to be very, very thin. And um, I think uh, also uh, one, of the, one of the images G.K. Chesterton used was that there's people today called cosmopolitans and they love humanity they love humanity so much. But if you ask them if they love any of the portions of humanity, you'll find that they hate them all. They hate kings and they hate priests and they hate soldiers and sailors, but they love humanity. And so I think that, that captures what you're getting at. Um, let, let's walk through some of the content. You mentioned Calhoun, you mentioned Aquinas uh, and Aristotle. Uh, you're not going to be able to, to mention everyone that you have here because there's a lot, but um, give us some of the names, uh, give us some of the categories. Cause I noticed you have a bunch of different categories. You have, you know, economics, you have history, you have, uh, you know, you, you divide it up in, in, in tons of different ways here. Um, yeah. so, so kind of just give us a, a run through of the content that is in this anthology and then let's drill down a little deeper. Sure. So we tried to go chronologically, but then it just, it got difficult um, we start off with the ancient world and we talk about the Greeks and Romans. We also get into uh, Egypt. We have some Egyptian sources, Hittite sources, Jewish, Chinese, Indian. Um, and then we kind of move into, because at least my scholarship and uh, Daryl's is uh, a, lot, a lot of my, um, my academic training is in 
theology, we have a lot to do with the church. And so we have the church fathers, we have the early church. Um, we go into the middle ages, um, the reformation period. We talk about, we have uh, Puritans and Presbyterians, Baptists, Catholics, Orthodox. Um, we could do some scripture scholarship. So Bible commentaries, dictionaries, uh, things like this, which by the way, could have, we could have done a lot more. It's just uh, how much time do we have to devote to this and how many resources right. do we have? Um, that we get into the modern period and that's probably the biggest section. And I can't go through everything in the modern period because if you, if you look at the history of this discussion, sort of um, <clears throat> national feeling, fellow feeling, it's, uh, there's not as much writing in the ancient period as there is today. And so in the modern period, it sort of explodes with uh, founding fathers, general uh, politicians and statesmen, political philosophy, historians, literature, poetry. We also get into some sociological studies. Um, personally, I don't find the sociological studies as convincing as maybe the historical record, but we included those because there are a lot of them, uh, hundreds and hundreds of sociological studies demonstrating some of the truths, the perennial truths that our you know, ancestors knew. And some people like to see that data. So we included that section um, sort of like as a support. But yeah, we also have an economic section in there too, uh, dealing with sort of, um, it's sort of like the economic implications uh, of, of some of the theories that we, you know, the themes we talk about in the book. And then we end with a discussion, a short discussion on uh, immigration. Okay. So you're, you're, um, <laughs> you're making this relevant. You're, you're trying to address topics that are actually even in the news today. Immigration is one of those things, but mm -hmm. economic issues, yes. um, et cetera. Um, for, since I think most of the audience or good, good portion of this audience uh, are Christians, um, why don't you talk to us just a little bit about the Bible? Uh, and, and let me, let me preface it with this. If, if you would, I actually, I just posted this on Twitter today cause I was reading it. Um, and I just feel like it sets the tone, but, uh, let's see if I can find it here in numbers two, I was reading numbers two, uh, verse two, God charges Moses to tell the sons of Israel to camp each, uh, by his own standard with the banners of their father's households. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, well, this is God implementing symbols of identity based upon social right. bonds formed through natural relationships and proximity. And, um, and that's not popular with the evangelical elite crowd. So what are some other passages? Where do you, where do you find this in scripture, this idea that um, loving our neighbor is, you know, that first it's to your family, for, then maybe to the household of faith, but it, it, your circles kind of, as they get wider, your responsibility decreases. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things I would say is um, you can find a lot of this in the Old Testament. So just big picture, it's clear in the Old Testament that there's a preference for uh, my tribe or my uh, people group as opposed to the Gentiles. Just everyone else is called Gentiles. Like the, you're just the out group. Um, so you can go to the Old Testament and show a lot of passages that talk about this. God, um, you know, for instance, Genesis uh, 10, where you have the sons of Noah 
and from them all the boundaries are set. Um, this is Genesis 10:32. God set the boundaries in place uh, according to their the numbers of the sons, according to their their genealogies, according to their nations. Um, so you have sons, boundaries, gene genealogy, nation, language. Um, you have that sort of thing over and over and over. You have, uh, for instance, Joshua. You know, he's he's going to say, um, "For as for me and my house, you you guys do." If you're going to do one thing, great. But for me and my house, we're going to do this. And what was me and my house? It wasn't just the nuclear family back then. It was probably him and all his, all his relatives to cousins and, and perhaps servants and things like this. Um, but some people might say, and again, you can find this uh, in, in the book of Psalms. I think one of the most poignant examples is in the book of Psalms. And uh, this is uh, Psalm 137. And the the Israelites are captured and they're exiled in Babylon. And uh, they're asked, the cap, their captors ask them, hey, sing us a song of, of Israel. One of your, sing us one of your Israelite songs. You know, sing us, sing us the national anthem. And the, the, um, what, what is the psalm? It says, by the water, uh, waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And our captors required of us a song. And then the, the question is, how can we sing of a song? How, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How, like, how can we do this? And, and again, um, this is, you know, this is Old Testament. People might say, well, in the New Testament, Christ, Christ does away with all this, right? He does away with the sense of a feeling of place uh, or, you know, belonging and uh, ties to family and, and things like this. But um, I, I would disagree. Um, the New Testament isn't as long as the Old Testament, and it's more of a epistolary and uh, didactic than it is. And there's some, there's some narrative to it. Um, but there are examples of this in, uh, in the New Testament. For instance, the book of Acts, Paul goes to the Gentiles to, uh, in Athens, and he says, um, look, you're worshiping false idols. Uh, all these gods are not, are not right. God, there's only one true God. He made everything. In fact, he made from one man, every nation of mankind uh, to live on the face of the whole earth. And he determined their appointed times and boundaries of habitation. And I think that's a key uh, verse here because he's showing both unity and diversity. So we all come from one man, right? We all come from one man. However, from that one man, he made all the nations, and he gave us boundaries and he gave us times. And he's saying this to these non-Jewish people as a, as a way of saying, look, you're, you're not Jewish, you know, and I am, you're, you're Greek, but, but there is one God and he commands all men everywhere to obey him. And so it's, the, it's, it's a beautiful concept here. We're diverse peoples, but we're united, uh, not m merely in our shared humanity, but we're united in God. God brings us together. However, we do have our own uh, separate nations. And he, there's other examples too, where um, uh, you, you have the verse that says, um, if any man provide for his, uh, not for his own, and especially for those of his household, um, he hath denied, he's denied faith. This is first right. Timothy five. Eight. Right. Uh, and, it, and it's, it's almost like it was so obvious that they didn't need to go on and expound upon this, right. And write large tracts and treatises and things like this. It was just like, 
by way of introduction, you should take care of your, your people. And if you haven't, you've denied the faith. So not taking care of your family and your household first is not just a natural principle. It's, it has something to do with not denying the faith, right? So there's some moral religious principle here as well. We also see in Galatians 6, you know, while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Right. Paul right. wishing to be accursed for the sake of his, right, that's right. his people. Uh, so it, this is, I think people who are listening, hopefully are already starting to connect some dots and realize this is stepping on some toes in elite circles, not just in Christianity, but really just about every institution and organization um, that we're probably familiar with, because this falls, you know, th th this contradicts this kind of equity, diversity, inclusion narrative. Um, to have to, to have a love for your own and, um, and and that's an okay thing that that you like your people you like the symbols of your people you like the the place um, that you grew up with uh, in you you feel that your responsibility is to them primarily uh, I can already see the accusations you know that's racism <laughs> that's uh, that's nationalism um, uh, that maybe that's kinism if you take it too far. Right. Uh, so, so yeah, talk to me about that. Do, do you see these objections? Um, what are they? And then how, wh what would your answer be to people who maybe would accuse you of that? Oh, and, and, and actually real quick, could I just give one example too? I, want, I, I just sure. thought of this. Sorry. So w while you're answering that, I just thought of this, the multi-ethnic kind of church model, maybe being a good one to, to talk about because um, in that model, uh, the assumption is that there's all these separate ethnic churches because there's some kind of racism or discrimination. But if what you're saying is true, there could also be another motivation in there, maybe even a stronger one of a preference for one's own. And it might not be a sin that some people are in congregations uh, with others who have the same kinds of foods. And um, yes, uh, yes. you see what I'm saying. I grew up in a yes, very yes. multi-ethnic church and, and love it and, and, and all that. But I, I just want to hear you know, your response to some of that. Well, so as far as the multi-ethnic church, I think, um, I think people miss things. You, I've traveled a little bit. Okay. I lived in Europe for a while in Germany, Italy, and I've been over, I've been to the Middle East, uh, for, for a time. Um, people who are away from their homeland tend to gather together. It's just what people do. I saw some Filipino, uh, people in, uh, in Kuwait one time and, they huddled together, they ate together, they walked together, they banded together, they bunked together, they lived in the same tent together. Um, and they didn't have to, but they, they just kind of found each other. And uh, the, the place that I work at right now, I work in a church and it's a very big church. And um, there's a Mexican group that meets there for their services. And they could easily, these people, they speak English. Um, they could easily fit into, go into the, the large, congregational area during the normal service, but they hold their own services. Why do they do that? Do they do it because they're uh, xenophilic or whatever the word is? Or No, it's because they're not in Mexico, but they miss it. Uh, they, they miss the hills and the mountains. They miss the air. They miss the sounds and the, the foods. And, um, you know, I lived in, a, in a, a neighborhood. It was like 800 square foot, 800 square, 800 house neighborhood. And there was like, it's funny how this worked out. There was like the Asian section <laughs> and uh, there was the Mexican section and the African-American section. There was like a bunch of old white people in one section. And no one told anybody to live like this. They just, people just kind of 
naturally congealed. And, and it's, you know, we, I ride by the, all the Mexicans out there and they're, you know, barbecuing and things. It's not because they don't want to be around Asians. It's because they do want to be around each other. They do want to listen to their uh, Mexican uh, music or whatever it is. And so um, this, is not a, this is not a bad thing. It's to, to love uh, the people who, with whom you most identify doesn't mean that you hate others. Um, and in fact, traveling uh, around others sometimes makes you love your group even more. It makes you appreciate that even more and long for it. And I've personally experienced this um, in, in my travels. So that, that's a, so the answer, if I were to summarize, is that it's not a hatred for other people that causes one to preference or feel a sense of um, attachment to one's own or people right. like yourself necessarily. It's actually probably what would be more natural is just you, you have a love. It's actually a love. Right. Uh, yeah, which, it's not a hatred that pushes you away. It's a love. It's a love that attracts you. And that's natural to, uh, to humanity. But, but as far as the, um, the, you know, like uh, this could be used by uh, people with different motives and things like this. I mean, sure, I'm sure it could. Um, that's not necessarily, that's not what we're trying to go for. I mean, we actually had, for instance, we had a lot, we found a lot of material on slavery. Uh, I mean, a whole lot. And we cut out like 90% of it because we just thought it's probably going to detract from the whole purpose of the work. Um, purpose of the work isn't to promote. We did include some of it, um, but the purpose isn't to promote that. And um, well, so that's how, not, how did you know, how did that specific how did that relate to the central thesis of of your anthology? What do you I'm that, sorry, that you specific say? topic of slavery? Slavery. Yeah. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. Oh, it was just showing people were saying um, that there was a social hierarchy that justified uh, slavery, oh, essentially, okay. and so we thought. This, you know, this is um, material along the lines of uh, the idea of, of difference and, and, but it wasn't, it, it took it in a direction that we thought was not uh, conducive to what we were trying to say. You know, when you, when you put an anthology together, people are going to ask, so what are you saying? What right. are you doing? Right. And, and so we think, okay, well, people are going to ask that. And so we want to just ward that off, you know, right away. The only bits of slavery that we did include were like in the early, uh, like the, first couple hundred years of uh the ad period but um church, early church history yeah, yeah. I, I would say one big one big answer or one quick answer i guess is to like the the racial uh tribalist uh, narrative um is that there are there are people within um ethnicities throughout history that that uh, butt heads together and so you can find this happening within Israel as an example, where the different tribes of the same people uh, all fight each other. I mean, the whole split of the kingdom between North and South, and they split for good and they never got back together. That's, uh, that's an example of, of this not working out so smoothly. Right. And uh, the same thing I would say too, with um, any kind of like color marker conglomerate, like, um, you know, if you're going to say something like white people or something, one of the most obvious things to me in the history of um, white people is how much we have not got along. And so uh, you have English versus Irish, the Normans, uh, you know, the Vikings coming in, taking over everywhere. I mean, it just, it doesn't, the whole World War I and II are like not these small little things in history. Uh, so 
white, white people, you know, Europeans, I, I'll say, you know, they've killed each other a lot more than just about every, any other <laughs> right, group right. in the world. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I see what you're saying. Um, uh, one thought I had as you were talking is, you know, taking, let's say, an issue like segregation uh, in this country, uh, you know, that was something that had to be forced by law. It wasn't, it, it, I, I don't sense that that would actually be a, a necessarily a misuse of what you're trying to say. It's more of, a, it's, um, it's actually outside of it because you're talking about natural relationships. And if you have to right. force something, that's not natural anymore. Right. You're, you're legally, uh, which, which is interesting that in, in some of these more Southern urban areas, um, you know, during like the 1930s, 50, uh, 40s, 50s, they, they, they had to enforce that because if they didn't, the natural thing was for Southerners who had been living together for generations to, to, to live together and interact. So they, they, the, some of the elites wanted these laws to keep things separate. Um, right. So that, that is, that's way outside of, of, of this, in my, in my view, at least. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, you know, slavery in general, uh, when we you know, look at the Old Testament and stuff, uh, oftentimes it's the result of warfare. Uh, yeah, po yeah. poverty, famine, and these kinds of things. And, and maybe there's, um, if you look at ancient cultures, there's kind of a, that's the state of, of humanity. There's a, there's a natural thing when you, you need food and that's the only economic way that you can obtain that food and then survive. That, that would be natural. But, uh, but then if you, you know, use the Darwinian logic or something like, well, this, you know, race is superior to this race, then, then maybe right. stepping outside those bounds. Am I, am I onto something there? I just, I was hoping no, you yeah. would explain it that's, better. That's, that's correct. I, my, so my understanding of biblical slavery, like, you know, in ancient period was that it was a system for, in, in, one, in one sense, it was a system for survival, but it was also a system that tried to improve the lives of people who had been slaves and eventually see them off in a different, uh, in a different situation. Uh, there were instances where, yeah, you could inherit slaves, like Abraham had a servant, uh, who would inherit his household. But at the same time, it wasn't uh, this sort of complete subservient class. I mean, the, the servants could actually inherit the house. They could be considered sons at some point. Whereas the uh, slavery in the, in like the modern period or whatever, it had a whole different dynamic. Well, to well it. even in Roman times, uh, there's yeah. probably a different dynamic as well. Cause there was sort of yeah. a Roman supremacy injected into that, if I'm not mistaken. No, yeah, yeah, that's correct. I mean, that's why Paul, for instance, used his Roman citizenship to get out of prison. <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen. They were like, "Oh, oh, you're here. Let's uh, let's give you a red carpet, you know, out of here." Yeah. So, so, so people couldn't. I guess the point being that um, if someone wanted to accuse you, let's say, of you're promoting some of the worst things in the world by um, by putting this anthology out and showing mm. that across multiple cultures, including non-Western cultures, by the way, Egyptians, and, and you, know, you have some sort right. of in the Far East, uh, showing that they have a preference for themselves and there's nothing wrong with this. And we see this reflected in the Bible. Uh, you would not be guilty of the crimes of history. You would not be guilty of the Holocaust or you know, any sure. of the things that they'd want to pin on you. And I, I, and I want to just make that point because I think there's a propaganda machine that keeps emphasizing over and over the, you know, love for your, your, you know, I region um, symbols of your region, uh, the history, you know, where you've come from pride in your, in your nation. Now uh, these things are all, all right. somehow evil and somehow unbiblical. That that's the other thing you hear. This is, this is not a Christian thing. And I, I think your book is proving that not only is it a Christian thing, but it's also a natural thing. Um, let me ask you this. 
because uh, this is another critique I could hear someone leveling. Uh, something's not right just because it's natural. Is it? Mm. Question. Mm-hmm. So, so in other words, is, is the point that because it's natural, it's right? Uh, or maybe you want to expand on, on and tell me kind of more what, what you mean by natural when you use that term. Uh, yeah, I would say that this is something, so nat, by the word natural, I'm using it in the sense of like nat, a natural law um, that is supposedly, you know, theoretically derived from divine law. And so um, this is why we include a lot of theology here. I mean, a, a, a great deal of it. In fact, I think one of the weak points of the book to criticize my own work is that we have a little bit too much of that. Um, but if you, you can read the Orthodox church talking about this, um, you can read uh, Baptists even who are more apt to not be, uh, you know, nationalist or whatever you want to call it. But the, there's a lot of people uh, in, in, almost any church tradition who take the opposite view of, of that approach, which says, well, just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's, that it's biblical. And um, I don't have time to quote to you all of the, the people, but um, I think the Orthodox church probably has the strongest position on that. And the second would be the Presbyterian church. Uh, but the idea is that God established a certain way in the world. And this is what C.S. Lewis was trying to get at too in his um, his uh, uh, abolition of man, the Tao. Um, there's a certain natural law in the world that all humans recognize. Everywhere you go in the world, people, you've ne- you'll never find a people who think that it's a good thing to be a coward or that it's, that it's virtuous to betray your mother. Uh, you'll never find people saying that. Well, you never find people also in history saying that it's, that it's an honorable thing to betray your country that it's, um, it's actually the highest calling uh, to, to be unpatriotic, to turn, to, you know, turn coat, to be a Benedict Arnold, so to speak. Uh, you'll, you'll never find this. And why not? Because God put it in man to act a certain way. And, uh, and this is like sort of the, um, the Gentiles who don't have the law do the things of the law. Well, well, what is the law here? I would say the nearest thing, Ten Commandments, would be the commandment to honor your father and mother and every single commentary that I could find on this that talks about this, it would say, this is not just your immediate father and mother in the biblical, in the ancient concept, it would have been your fathers and your mothers. Um, well, the, first, the passage I just, I just read from you from numbers. That's exactly yeah. communicating the, the yeah. symbols of your fathers. That's right. Not just your dad. I mean, this is plural. This is, these are people going back, you know, generations that had the same symbols that carried through. Right. Right. And interestingly enough, the early church had to argue a lot about this because they were rejecting the religion of their fathers. I mean, if you're, if you and all your people have all had always been pagans and suddenly you become Christian, the charge against you is you're rejecting the gods of your fathers, right? You're, you're, you're abandoning your family. And so they had the apologists uh, had to argue this all the time. And they would, they, they, you, should, you should see the care and uh, precision with which they explain themselves. And they're not just saying, well, who cares about that? That's irrelevant, carrying on the traditions. No, they would say, yes, we are. But we believe we found the truth, though. And we're, we're, you know, so they're, they're reformers. They're not revolutionaries, right? They're not right. burning everything down right. um, as, they move, as they do reject some of the things of their fathers. And this is why Augustine, his city of God is like 1200 pages. You know, when Rome was falling, 
he didn't think, oh, well, good, good riddance. You know, he didn't put it in a tweet and say, this, you know, America is no longer a Christian nation. He said, Rome is falling and I'm so sad about it. Yeah. And I'm so broken up. Um, but let me explain what I think is happening. And it's, it's him trying to work through this process of really losing his civilization. And, and it's not and an easy thing. Didn't call him an idolater for loving That's right. Rome That's too right. much. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like Americans are called today. Um, yeah. One of the other objections I could see is someone saying, well, what about, you know, this pagan literature? Um, and you might have already kind of answered this, but, uh, you know, the Puritans, for instance, um, you know, they did not even use Greco-Roman architecture. They did not read the classics. I mean, it was Charleston, South Carolina that was keeping Oxford University afloat by ordering you know, massive amounts of classic literature. And you see it in the architecture in the South. There's, there's, a, there's a clear difference, it seems, between the regions. Um, but much of Reformed evangelical Christianity um, looks to not the not the the presbyterian you know divines but but more to the puritans today and i i think maybe john piper might be responsible in part for that i'm not sure but but so there there is this this strain that i have um witnessed maybe you've seen it as well i know you're you know into classical education where we we should just throw out i mean you mentioned um the odyssey why would we why would we read the odyssey why would we look at the, some of these sources so because you include so many of those, those sources could you just maybe talk about that for a moment sure so the there's there's a uh, a typical response to this i'm not being original here um the the early church fathers themselves didn't do that they didn't throw out pagan literature um you can read many books on this the shortest book that I know of, the most easily accessible book on this is a book by a guy named Steve Turley. He's a political commentator and it's, um, I think it's called Awakening Wonder or something like that. Anyway, um, the early church fathers themselves didn't do this. They appropriated the ancient pagan texts over and over and over. Uh, Augustine, for instance, he's got a book called On Christian Doctrine. And there's several chapters in the book and he it devotes one entire chapter to uh, justifying the use of pagan literature for purposes of learning how to, how to um, speak well and, and argue your case well. And so um, the early church didn't do this. The mid Middle Ages, um, to the extent that they had, late Middle Ages, these access to these documents, they used them. The scholastics used them. Uh, the early reformers definitely did. If you read Calvin or Turretin or uh, Althusius or anyone, they make reference, they make free reference uh, to these people. They wrote in Latin. I mean, for, for goodness sakes, they, uh, there was a reason people were writing in Latin. And, and so, and so the, the, the Puritans may have um, rejected this to some extent, but I would say they didn't reject some of the theories that were gleaned from that era, like natural law. Um, some of the things that Cicero said, for instance, make find their way into the writings of, of the Puritans who are referencing the idea that there is a natural, uh, a divine lawgiver who gives a man a natural law. And even the pagans, this references even in the pagans' minds. Um, another answer is that pagan literature um, contains fragments and shards of truth. If we're created in God's image, we have some of that residual, um, you know, imago dei in us. And so we're going to say things, we're going to create things in our culture much of which is going to be bad perhaps, but some of it is going to point to truth. And um, even the pagan poets do this sometimes. They, they say like Virgil, he's got some writings in his uh, eclogues where 
he's saying things about Caesar Augustus, but it sounds eerily, it sounds very creepily similar to what Christians said about Jesus Christ, uh, you know, a century later. Right. And so there's these, these fragments of truth. And C.S. Lewis points this out too. Um, people, one of the claims against Christianity in the early church period was that you guys just made this, all this up. It's a brand new religion. You just made it up. So it's like, uh, you know, Christians stay criticize Mormons or somebody. And you're like, yeah, you guys made that up 150 years ago. Well, and not only did you make it up, you borrowed from the pagan classics. This is Bart Ehrman. He loves to publish a book every year showing how Christians just made this thing up by borrowing from Ishtar. Right. You know, Easter is just Ishtar. Well, the Christians knew this and they responded by saying, we didn't make it up. You guys made it up. You guys made up all these myths. You were, you were uh, stuttering and babbling and you were blind uh, guides leading the blind. But you did get a few things right accidentally. You were like a, a broken clock that was right twice a day, but wrong for the rest of the day. You did get a few things correct. And so when you read these uh, ancient uh, pagan writings, you will find things in them that are, that are of worth keeping. Uh, such as, for instance, the um, example of Odysseus. He gives, up, he gives up fame. He gives up wealth. He gives up lust and uh, the beauty of a goddess. He gives up the light, this aesthetic life of uh, self-individual fulfillment to, to go back home, to be a good husband to his wife. And, and this is the concept of virtue. This is uh, right. not the virtue signal that we all talk about, <laughs> but the actual virtue. Um, and, right. and, 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 you know, I, I'm thinking of the founding fathers when they were debating about the constitution and what form of government uh, to set up. And you see kind of two things. You see uh, kind of an awareness of biblical principles. Um, of course, they're coming from British common law. So these principles have been distilled over time by tradition, but they, they reference the Bible constantly, not only for um, examples, but be, because of the core truths contained in, in the Bible. But then much of their experimentation, for instance, um, you know, democracy or a republic form of government, they, they talked about this kind of Hebrew republicanism, right. but they didn't have examples necessarily in scripture. They just knew that there, there was a form, but it, it wasn't expounded upon. So they looked to the Greeks and the Romans. Right. How did they implement representative forms of government. And, and, and that's how they um, we, we came up with the document that, uh, was governing us up until a short time ago um, in some ways. So, you know, th this is different in my mind than people who want to use like critical race theory as an analytical tool, because when they do that, um, they're ignoring the fact that critical race theory uh, is based on a set of assumptions about, you know, power relationships, systemic are systemic and embedded in everything. And we need these minority perspectives to know truth. So there's postmodernism. There's so it's, it's resting on these false assumptions. And that's why you can't use it as an analytical tool. But what you're talking about are people in history, pagans even, who um, because of natural law, because of the fact that God created this place, uh, they have um, they have asked they have used tools that um, would like mathematics and logic and these kinds of things that are just fundamental to reality, right? And that's a, I think that's a difference. I just I, I'm trying to head off at the past someone who would say, well, why not use like CRT or something? And I and I think that might be the answer is is some of these things are fundamental to reality and existence, and CRT would be 
this is artificial. This is in, in the imaginations of some sociologist mind, they made up a false reality. So you can't use that. But is that, uh, would you agree with that analysis or would you have anything to add yes. to that? No, the way I would say it is you can look at, you can look at this uh, very simply. Last summer, one of the uh, leading, you know, uh, thinkers of the, of this CRT, well, he's against it. His name's James Lindsay. He actually um, got, he, he said something on Twitter. He said two plus two equals four. Oh, right. And, um, and it created this firestorm controversy uh, uh, from people arguing that two plus two can equal five. I know. And, um, you know, to common folk, to us unlearned, unlearned uh, people who do our taxes according to two plus two equals four, um, we know that that's false. Well, what's happening? There is an ideology going on today that causes people to deny the fabric of reality, e even to the fundamental core of it in math. It's not just that they're denying gender and they're denying all these other things that people may disagree about. Um, they don't, they can't even admit that two plus two equals four. And, and however, they do go out and, you know, they go to the store and they need three bananas and they go get three. They don't get five. They get, you know, they do their taxes and they want a certain amount right. back on their taxes. They don't fudge there but they can deny reality in the abstract. This is what we mean here. There's a certain set of natural laws that are embedded in reality in the fabric of, of the created order that God put there. And all humanity has always recognized them, even pagans. Aristotle is not, he didn't invent logic, but he discovered many of the laws of logic that we know today and still teach today and they're valid. Um, the same thing with uh, early taxonomic forms, uh, things like this. Um, other, other types of math like Euclidean uh, and uh, Pythagoras and all kinds of things. These pagans are finding these things out. And just because they were worshiping idols doesn't mean they, they you know, didn't find something accidentally correct. And today, however, you have these pagans, but they're denying even what the, the ancient pagans knew. So it's like, um, it's like they're twice over, you know, uh, um, uh, pagans or something. It's, it's, they're pagans denying pagans, I guess you could, you could say it. Um, it's, it's a denial of reality and a rejection of the natural order that everyone's recognized. You, um, yeah, you know, even Cornelius Van Til, uh, and I, I'm not trying to put his words in your mouth. I don't even know if you're a Van Tilian kind of guy. And I, I'm, not even, I'm not even going there in that discussion right now. I just remembered one quote from him that I think is true. Uh, where, where he talks about borrowed capital and kind of, um, right. you know, and, and we see this kind of in, in, in Romans 1. We see this uh, in other places in scripture where uh, people will do things that are not consistent with other views they hold because they live in God's world, right? Right, um, right. And so they, they're, they're on borrowed capital and Christian, Christians can explain, they, they can give um, some, an interpretation of the, the real world because they have the manual for it. Yeah. Um, so, so... Well, this, you go ahead. I was going to say, this is, this is what Nietzsche tried to say to everyone, which was, um, look, and the early atheists, like the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s atheists, if you're going to deny God, if you're going to really, like, then do it. Be, be man about it. You know, uh, go all the way. Don't deny him, but try to keep morality. And that was Nietzsche's whole, his whole pitch was, you know, will to power, transvalue the values. Uh, Ubermensch, go over and beyond. Um, and you, you get this in the writings of H.G. Uh, Wells, for instance, when he writes his, his uh, time machine and he yeah. tries to show what it would l really look like in an atheistic universe if you go into the future. Um, it's much different than a Richard Dawkins who, you know, will throw Christianity 
out, out the window, but at the same time, try to uphold to values of fairness and tolerance and, uh, you know, uh, kindness right. and brotherly feeling. Well, and things. Even Wells, though, couldn't be consistent with it. He, of course. Yeah. I mean, he gets what he gets to like the what, millions of years in the future and he's, you know, the sun's about to like die. The earth is, is dying. And it's so he has to backtrack a bit to a point in time where he feels a sense of place. Right and right. a purpose, you know, he's, there's some purpose for me in this specific sure. time. So um, it's still a man hunting for a purpose, and and without being mm. able to make sense of why there even is a purpose. That's uh, a good point. But so so question: um, What's going on today? You you were just talking about it. People are denying even basic math. I mean, I think I think right after that we we saw that. Wow. Okay. You know, with the election numbers and everything, people really don't care about math. Like math really doesn't count anymore. Um, oh man. And uh, yeah, and Epstein didn't kill himself. Anyway, um, <laughs> figure I'd sneak that one in there while the the overlords at YouTube are you know uh, plotting oh to dis, to delete this video. Um, but so so why are people doing that? Why is there an attack on? Really, it is an attack on science in the name of science with, I see that with the yeah, COVID stuff, yeah. we, we have denial of reality with the BLM protests and all that. Mm-hmm. We have a denial of reality with the election. We're, we're trending in this weird direction. And it seems like that same crowd, the same people denying reality are also denying natural relationships. That, that seems to be part of it somehow is they don't want those attachments and responsibilities. They, they'd rather in some, they're in love with these abstractions. Right. So, so explain that to us. Why is this happening? How, like, how does your book help people uh, recognize and then kind of combat that? Well, there, there are so many explanations for why this is happening. Um, I can't, I can't get into all, I don't think there's any one reason why it's been happening for at least a couple hundred years now. I mean, I, I just read something from Jonathan Edwards talk and he was saying, this is early mid 1700s. And he's saying he's, he was dealing with it among people in his revival, uh, but to a lesser degree. Um, one, one explanation that I think really helped me understand things was that in the post-war period, so after World War II, um, everyone became really afraid of national sentiment because of uh, Germany, what happened in Germany and Italy and uh, many other countries, by the way, it's happened in many countries. Um, <clears throat> people became really afraid and there were especially Jewish people who, um, you know, fled to different countries. And in the post-war period, you have a lot of literature uh, that tries to promote this idea that um, the, this, uh, this authoritarian personality in the Western soul that believes things with strong convictions, that has a sense of we, a sense of place, culture, tr- uh, authority, tradition, all of these things led to Hitler. And so we have to reject all of those things so that we never have fascism again. And I think that's one, just one explanation. It doesn't incorporate, account for anything in the 1800s. Um, but I think that's, that's a big one driving today. Another one could be slavery um, in America, at least race relations. We have to continually undo, not just like getting, doing away with slavery uh, did not do away with the thing that allowed for slavery, you see. And so what, what were the thing, what was the thing that allowed for slavery? Well, everything, every bit, every facet of society during that time did. So we have to undo all of that. We have to continually come out with statements every year saying, we're sorry again. Right. Um, 
we, we have to give up more and more and more political rights or power or money. Um, and so I think those are just a few. Okay, there's there are yeah. more, but those are a few big ones. Well, historians, uh, you, you, they tend to um, they tend to view events sometimes and, and time periods in the past through kind of. Uh, and this isn't all the time, and I'm not saying all historians are like this, but I, I've just noticed a tendency. They'll view it through the lens of other events. So, for instance, sl- slavery in America, um, there, there's been a number of interpretations, but the, the popular one uh, that sort of emerged more in the 60s uh, and the 70s was kind of viewing that through the lens of the civil rights movement and attaching them. And they were never, you know, that, that wasn't something that had happened. And so it wasn't, um, th- those were not attached and associated in people's minds. Well, now, now they are because of the way right. historians have interpreted that. Um, the other thing I think is though, uh, a lot of, and, and this isn't just slavery, but uh, the Crusades, a lot, a lot of things that have happened in history that are deemed to be very negative have been interpreted through kind of the lens of the Holocaust. And that this right, is, right. Um, I was just reading a book, uh, it's on my shelf and I, I don't remember where it is or, or I would pull it down, but it was, it was on the Holocaust and basically blaming the church for the Holocaust, mm. uh, not, not even really going into the scientific racism. And it was written by someone very influenced by critical theory, but uh, basically saying like the, the Holocaust started um, in the early church <laughs> that sent mm. it was brewing, bubbling right. up. And then finally, like it bubbled over and then Hitler like right. finally did it. That's right. You know, yeah. the Christians were just pushing for this the whole John Chrysostom and, right. uh, you know, Augustine and, and Martin Luther. And then finally Hitler, he just went and did it like that. That interpretation is bogus historically. Right. Um, I, I was required to read it in a class. So that's why, why I read it. But um, anyway, it, it's, um, it's kind of, it, it's that ideology. I think you were referencing before, like everything yeah. becomes like this abstract thing and they're, they're, they shut the door on anything natural. And it seems, um, it seems to contradict the way that probably these historians even live. They don't live that way, right. um, where they're, they're drawing all these lines all the time. They're, they, they live, uh, coming home. And like you said, loving their pets, loving their kids, yes. um, you know, and not thinking like, oh my goodness, I'm like on Ordorno's F scale right now because I love my kids so much. I must be a Nazi. Like, <laughs> right, right. So, so how, yeah. how do we communicate that to people? And how does your book help communicate that? Like, right. hey, you're not a bad person for, for just loving your family, your people, your right. region, your country. Right. Well, one thing I think that at least my research, my personal research, research has found is that that line, that narrative that people are trying to draw from like early church to the middle ages to uh, white Europeans to slavery, to the Holocaust, that line to this, you know, is actually one thin line among thousands of lines of history and historical development. So John Chrysostom did not just influence Northwestern Europeans in the modern period. So if whatever John Chrysostom said, in the early uh, in in the ancient times, why didn't it affect Holocausts all over the world to all kinds of people everywhere? Um, so you know why didn't it cause many of these over and over and over and over? Um, you find, in other words, sort of this. I'll call it. I'll just call it for the sake of simplicity. I'll call it national sentiment. You find national sentiment among the Hungarians in the late Middle Ages, right? You find it among the Swedish people. You find it among uh, Romanians and Bulgarians. You find it among uh, Arabic peoples all over. Armenians during the Armenian genocide, which is uh, 
which is um, enforced upon them by the Ottoman Turks. So like, and why, why did this happen during this other, to this other people, but it didn't cause what it caused in the Western world? So if you're going to say this thing back in, back in time directly caused this other thing in, later in time, post hoc or propter hoc, um, why didn't it cause that same thing to happen in many other instances? Why, in fact, why did the exact opposite happen in all these other cases? And so one of the things my, uh, our book shows is that you can find this again, nationalist sentiment or whatever you want to call it, um, family, family, family sentiment, um, local sentiment. You can find it in people, all peoples at all times for all kinds of different reasons in different situations. Um, mm. So, and, and, it's, and it didn't lead to the same things each time. Um, so some people will say like, this, is, this was used as sort of an imperialist uh, stamp in the Western world. Well, national sentiment arose so often as a reaction against imperialist advance. Anytime you have some group of people imposing themselves on others, you have that group of people imposed upon rising up and saying, let's all of us, we gather together against them. This actually happened. I think the earliest instance that I've recorded of this is from like uh, the 2000s or 3000s BC in Egypt. Uh, the upper uh, upper Egypt and lower Egypt were going at it, and the lower Egypt gathered their forces together in sort of this uh, ethnic solidarity against the others. And so, it was a it was a defense mechanism, in other words. Anyway, one of the things our book does is shows that um, this is not this standard narrative that you're told is a very provincial and uh, narrow view of the history of this feeling among mankind. Yeah, and that, that's important uh, because it really, it closes the door, in my opinion, on not just progressivism, but also kind of an extreme libertarianism where the individual is the only social unit that matters. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and everything becomes about that. There, there actually are social bonds, but that's not socialism. And so you trace back you know, the right. Romans were not, you know, they're not exercising in, in Marxism or anything like that, but there, there was an attachment and a duty one had to one's own people uh, militarily to defend uh, mm -hmm. your people. Um, that was just an expectation uh, right. and sort of, and many other responsibilities. So, um, you know, how do you, how do you rebel against this uh, sort of on a personal practical level, uh, this kind of Tower of Babel version two that we are now um, <laughs> kind of heading toward where we're just this global community and we should just give up all our, our rights um, to the, the central authority because they're going to give us security and equity, inclusion, diversity, loving your <laughs> national symbols and, and stuff are, is wrong. How do you rebel against that in, in your own uh, life if you have any examples? Well, one of the I'm going to kind of be uh, corny here, I guess, but the book is titled, who is my neighbor? And uh, Jesus gave the parable to the good Samaritan as a, as an example of a good neighbor. And I think that's a That's a perfect way of, of, of fighting back against people might think, Oh, that's, that's an example of universalist sentiment. Well, actually it's, it's not really the guy uh, was walking along the road and he saw that person directly and helped that person directly. He didn't help, theoretically, these four foreign people through some state program. By voting for a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so my advice, and my, I, guess, I guess what I do is do life with those around you. And, uh, you know, whoever you see around you, those are your neighbors. That's your neighbor. 
Uh, and if that person, so I live in a place that's um, my, we, in Louisiana, we have parishes, not counties. Um, my parish, it's like 50 something percent black and 40 something percent white. Um, so what do I do personally? I, I do life with the people around me here. That's what I'm doing. Um, um, you know, I, I am involved in, in considering national politics and I'm, I'm aware of global affairs and things, but I'm, I come home to my wife every day and I love my wife. Um, that's, there's something to be said for that. I mean, today that doesn't happen all the time, right? Get married, have kids, love your kids, provide for your kids, build your house, love your neighbors, get involved in them. Um, start traditions or, or continue on the traditions of your ancestors with joy and uh, don't neglect them. Don't think that they're, because they've been commercialized, you can't celebrate them anymore. That's right. Um, the church it, and Western history is full of rich, rich uh, traditions that are, that are wonderful. And so those are just some simple, I know it sounds kind of like uh, common. It, it might be, the answer is, you're thinking the answer is going to be maybe way over here and more complex, but just get married, have kids, love, love your neighbor physic, physically, like go over there and help them cut their grass and, and do things for them and get to know them. Um, yeah. You sound that's, like that's the, the simplest John, way. The John Doe party over there. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I, I had a professor uh, about a year ago um, say to me, and he's a Christian. He said, you know, I think Christians need to get back to loving things. And you know, of course I was like, wait, right. what? And you know, all the materialistic bells start going off. He's like, no, seriously, like things that God has put, close to you and given to you specifically. Um, and, and this could be family, but this, this could also be just material things. It could be the, right. that are in your life. Um, he's not saying idolize them. He's saying that like live in the life that you're actually in that God's given you. And, and too often, and I have to watch myself because, you know, even right now we're, we're speaking, we're on a zoom call, right? Um, we, we are having a conversation and, uh, and it does matter uh, as the podcast uh, title says, but at the same time, um, it's not the same as me being in the same room with you, for instance. It's not the same as, you know, my wife who's in the other room right now um, mm. or, or my neighbor who's, who's right across the street. There, there is a, prox a natural proximity that God's created. And, and I don't want to neglect that because of online interface. And, uh, right. and I guess I would just challenge people to just be careful that you're not just in your cell phone all the time or just always in kind of this digital world, because um, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm in it, but, uh, but I think you're onto something with, uh, with the good Samaritan analogy and, and the idea of natural relationships. Um, the, these relationships are, are bound through not just physical proximity, but also responsibility and also, yes. um, and also genetics to some extent, uh, you know, your family, these are people, you know, someone at some point got together and, and those kids who listen, they did the do. And, 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 and here, here you are. And, and there, there was a bond there. That's something God created. Right. That's, you know, that's not racism or hate. That's, um, you know, to, to say that there's a long line and a group of people who have done this. No, that's actually love. They've come together. And, you know, at least the way God intended. Right. But it, it's, in, it's in many ways, though. It, it's in many ways, too, though. I mean, passing on language yeah. to your kids. Teach, teach them teach them language, your language. That's, that's it. Teach them to do, to dance. If you know any of your dances, uh, if you play music, teach them the music that you listen to. Pat, that's one thing that um, I, I hope to do is not, is to pass on music to my children that I love. And um, so that they, they have some connection with me there, but there, there's so many ways that my, my neighbor, there's a child being born. And so some of the ladies in the area are getting together, making a quilt. It's a tradition that they do. 
and it seemed kind of quaint and kind of homey and like, how is this fighting against the forces of globalism? Well, there's this old <laughs> saying that's uh, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. It's, right. This, all this starts at home. And, um, you know, the family is the, is the bedrock of, uh, you know, socially speaking of, of society. And if, if you are, I guess, to put it in a corny way, uh, Jordan Peterson said, go clean your room. Um, <laughs> if you can't right. clean your room, don't, don't think you're going to clean up the world or whatever. Um, and he's right. It's, there's a, it's just profound truth there. Well, go ahead and get the book. Um, you can go to, I just actually, while we were doing this, I ordered it on Amazon. Uh, I ordered two copies, actually. Um, you can go there. I'll put the link in the info section for people who want to order it. Um, I bought one for myself, bought one to give as a gift um, to someone. I think I might, I might give it to my brother. He's a teacher and, and cool. it might benefit him. But uh, I appreciate you putting this together. And um, any final thoughts for, for us? No, I, um, yeah, I'd love to hear uh, feedback on the book. We, we plan to be updating uh, and making like another version in like another five years, maybe like a second volume or something. So um, cool. Where, where can people find you? Is it just Twitter or? I'm on Twitter, uh, Thomas Acord. I'm on uh, Facebook. I got on Gab recently. I'm not there, I'm there a lot, but um, I'm there. And uh, that's, yeah, that's where you can find me. Perfect. All right, we'll put some links in the info section. I appreciate it, Thomas. Thank you. Thanks for having me, John. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.